The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Path for Better Outcomes in ALL, Integrating Modern Asparaginase Compounds into the Care of Pediatric, AYA, and Adult Patients. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JFN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this uh, satellite symposium. Uh, it is my pleasure to, to have here my two distinguished colleagues, uh, Professor Max Top and uh, Professor Rachel Rao. So let's start with this uh, symposium, which is uh, the path for better outcomes in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And the objective is how to integrate modern asparagines compounds into the care of pediatric AYA and adult patients. Just a few words regarding asparagines because uh, we know asparagines because uh, who is treating ALL uh, is uh, knowledgeable about this, uh, this drug. But uh, some details probably are not completely clear, especially those coming from the past. Back in 1904, asparagines activity was detected in beef tissue. And in 1992, an Italian researcher showed that among mammals, the guinea pig appeared unique in possessing an enzyme that destroyed asparagine in 1922. In 1953, which is the date where most of the asparagines stories start from, uh, Kidd reported that guinea pig serum had an anti-tumor activity in mouse lymphoid tumors. He was attempting to kill, and this is an interesting story, transplanted leukemia using antiserum from rabbits immunized with mouse leukemia cells. Guinea pig serum was added as a source of complement to enhance effectiveness of rabbit antibodies. So Guinea pig serum was not the goal of the experiments, but the control mice treated with the Guinea pig serum only cleared leukemia. So clearly, only GPS did this, not rabbit, horse, human. And the guinea pig serum affected only leukemia cells and only some leukemias. How interesting the pioneer time of our sciences. 1961, Broom con confirmed that the activity of, uh, of the killing activity was due to asparagines and was responsible for its anti-lymphoma effects. In 1963, the Escherichia coli enzyme was shown to have an anti-tumor enzyme. FDI approved in 1978 that the asparagines from E. coli. In 1994, peg asparagines was approved by FDA for patients hypersensitive to native form of L asparagines, so the second line. Uh, in 2006, PEG was approved for first-line ALL therapy. In 2011, uh, Erwin Space was approved for treatment in, uh, in, uh, uh, in human beings. And in 2018, Asparlas, which is the Calaspargase Pegol, was approved by FDA. PEG aspergens is, uh, since 2019, on the list of the WHO for essential medicine for cancer patients. In 2021, the recombinant Erwinia approved. Uh, so I think that this is a very interesting story, long, long uh, coming from many years, many decades, and today we will find how to today is possible to harmonize, to improve, and to uh, have even better results with the use of this drug in the framework of the of the chemotherapy schedules. So. The, today's agenda is a masterclass lectures on evidence supporting modern asparagine compounds across ALL population. We will uh, have, we have prepared some case-based illustrations of the principles of asparagines using ALL, and then we will have uh, a question and answers session. So thank you for your attention up to now, and I think that we are opening a very interesting uh, session. I will ask my friend and colleague Max Top to come to the podium for his start. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction and, and a welcome to the audience. It's great to be live again, not anymore being the virtual hub. Um, 
I will talk about Asperger's formulation in the context and try to give an overview of this complex situation, the current challenges that we are facing in the adult setting. So the success in child managing adult level has increased, and this is summarizing sort of the clinical trials that have been performed, and it's quite obvious that children uh, have the best response, and when you get older, unfortunately, this uh, trickles down. Uh, currently, only about 25% of the patients older than 65 can be cured long-term with this. So there are certain advances that have been made, and I would like to take you through what's out there. ALL is a disease uh, who is most probably, in my mind, one of the most complex diseases to be treated. The protocols are really feeding on using basically a lot of different chemotherapies, immunotherapies, and lately, and it's just sort of summarized the development that we have been taking over the years. Uh, and as you can really appreciate, there's a lot of stuff happening with ALL with the acceleration of immunotherapy in particular in the last couple of years, leading to quite astounding results. And capping it off, we now do have in 2021 two more drugs being approved. One is a CAR T-cell for adult patients and a new form of recombinant aspirogenase. So there's really a lot of stuff happening in this disease that is equally important for pediatrics as well as adult hematologists. With that said, uh, these are the treatment results in L depending on age, and again, summarizing where we were in 2013 by my colleague Kirati Sabrina in, from Rome. And it's also clearly seeing that we have a clear tie, uh, age dependency of the results of long-term control of the disease. And it is just basically that the older you get, you just don't withstand anymore the high-intensity protocols. Uh, and we also have more patients with high-risk features, uh, genetically mainly, and other unknown factors of disease biology where we are deciphering more and more what's happening. So the question really is, what is a young patient? And this is, of course, a matter of debate. And I just would like to give you maybe my view of the situation. You can basically talk about pediatrics being until the age of 18. Then we have this murky field of what is a young adult. Uh, this could be quote ayas, and there are ones who say 18 to 30, but there has also been a definition which I find quite favorable, 18 to 40 and beyond the age group of that, uh, flattering sometimes, and then what are adults, and then the old and frail patients. And then the different study groups that we are looking at also explore this kind of situation where we have uh, the IA groups being spread out uh, until the age of 40, other groups being much more stringent in the situation. But generally speaking, this is the approach that we are following in Germany at the moment, where we have the full pediatric protocols until the age of 18, adaptive pediatric protocols up to the age of 55, reduced pediatric protocols up to the age of 76 in some selected patients, and then the elements uh, may be carried on for the frail population. So with that said, uh, this is sort of another update on what has happened, and you may appreciate actually putting a patient into complete remission is not really anymore so much the issue. Virtually 90% of the adult patients are able to be put into that situation across the board using all these pediatric elements, mainly with us in Europe, but also the United States. And the OS that we are reaching now is somewhere, somewhere between 60 to 75% across the board. So what are the future goals in combining these successful approaches from pediatric-based adults and pediatric protocols? So there are promising approaches from my mind is that you have introduced ALTAP chemotherapy, reinduction steroids, high-dose methotrexate, aspergenase in that situation. I think we can focus on maintenance, uh, better protocol adherence. I think that is a very important part because it's very clear that only the patient who really goes through the whole protocol would have the highest chance of being cured potentially. So this is something I think we should work on. SCT, particularly for uh, anyone beyond the age of 40, we have a TRM rate which is exceeding 25%, which is clearly an issue for patients, and we have to optimize for therapy. And promising approaches from adult trials is introducing PEC adjuvanase, really going to the limits with that, and we think we would touch base on that. Then MRD-based therapies, yeah, I may mention the one word, blind to map in this situation, and targeted therapies that are introduced. 
So I would like to focus on how can we actually use aspergenase to intensify this situation. What are the lessons that we have learned from the PEATS? What can we do for the elderly, older patient population situation? So um, we have learned uh, that once we've been using our aspergenase in more focused passion, coming up to the maximum that we can now actually close the gap here between the patients uh, 18 to about 50, uh, about 45, uh, that the analytic survival curves are actually quite similar. And that is due to that we have learned how to incorporate aspergenase, for example, as one of the hallmarks into the protocols. And there's still a very clear situation that once you reach the age of 55, there's a dramatic drop in the long-term control of the disease. So, and what we have done in our study group, and this is a courtesy from Nicola, uh, who gave me a couple of slides, is that what can be said in our study group, that if you introduce to use more aspergenase in patients that we treat in the age group between 55 and 50, that we can actually have a, some, a very high rate of control of the disease of about 80% in these patients over time if we use aspergenase up, up to the max that can be done into these patients when compared to patients uh, with standard risk features at the age. And you also can appreciate this is also for patients between the age group of 15 to 45 and also until the age of 55. So, um, what are the goals of aspergenase therapy in uh, these patients? It is that we want to have uh, uh, questions like interval and continuous infusion, the dosing, this has effect on the relapse risk, and avoiding severe toxicities, identifying which other patients are high risk for aspergenase toxicity, and how can we support these patients and individualize dosing intervals, obviously to get away from withdrawal. And just to touch base on what are the current aspergenases that we can use in the situation, we have the one which is used commonly in most protocols, is the PEC aspergenase, and we have then a couple of drugs available, particularly these two here that have been also used in Europe and recently also another one approved in the United States which then deal with patients who can't tolerate PEC aspergenase due to silencing, for example, a hypersensitivity, a task that Rachel will talk a little more in detail later on. So I think this is important, this slide. It talks about the different dosing that we're using. So we have 2,000 units, 1,500 units in the duction phase and the consolidation phase. And this is where we want to be at day 14. We want to have depletion. And you see that about 90% of the patients, when we use the 2,000, we have good depletion situation. And if you have just using 500 in a normal standardized patient, there's virtually any no one that really has successful consolidation. And this is as a situation in the consolidation phase. And, but you reach with 500,000 some activity, of course, in, in at day seven. But what we are really shooting for is day 14, that we want a sufficient depletion in that situation. So coming back to this flip side, what happens if we take out aspergenase in these patients? And this is a paper by, drawn by the pediatrics. I think this is a very important piece of paper. And it clearly shows if we stop aspergenase in these patients for whatever reason, intolerability, hypersensitivity, uh, there's a clear statistic significance in drop of survival in these pediatric courts. And I would predict that this is the same also in the adult setting. And we still have to do this analysis down the road. So what are the risk factors for aspergenase toxicity? I think we have all recognized obesity. And this is defined by the BMI greater than 30 is the most common risk factor across the board in pediatrics as well as in adult situation. Age is a continuous risk factor. We spoke about that. We have to adapt that. Diabetes. Here we have to also consider also the BSA, more than two square meters, and platelets clowns. And there's some hints from the American studies that even the necessity may play a part in this context. Talking about BMI, obesity, you can well appreciate that the BMI, less than 30, so has the best outcome. And then it triggers down very quickly someone with mild obesity between BMI between 30 and 40. There's a significant drop uh, in this long-term control of the disease. 
once you're getting up to obesity of more than BMI of 40, so that is quite significant. The hazard ratio, when compared to the control group, is 3.29 in situation, leading to quite an inferior control of the disease over a time period of many years. And putting that in context with other risk factors that we know about ALA treatment, and you well can appreciate high white blood cell counts, which deem a patient to be high-risk ALL in situation, or pH-like, or other genetic features, or that those are the patients that have inferior outcome. And when you look at the BMI, 30 plus minus, it is in that context, like the same situation of having a high <laughs> hyperleucocytosis in situation. So it is really, it's not just by itself, but also in comparison to other risk factors, quite significant to refocus on this situation. So um, when we also talk about BMI, uh, is that the only thing that really plays the situation, something like that? Well, there are other issues here when we look at the uh, toxicity in these different groups, and the numbers obviously become small. But I think it is not just the BMI. We also have a correlation there to hepatic toxicity, to elevated situation two, and pancreatitis picking up since So most probably it is not just the BMI itself, but it's also just that you have a kind of a feature of a metabolic syndrome that really is the issue for these patients. And it's becoming more and more a problem as our society, unfortunately, uh, is becoming more leaning towards this situation that obesity is becoming an issue in this situation. So altogether, summarized, it is the gamish of hepatic toxicity, BMI, pancreatitis, coagulation, osteonecrosis, and hypertrichemia that really cause the major relevant toxicities in the situation. And as a patient with metabolic syndrome, I think these are the patients where we really have to focus on and are troublesome. So how can we prevent this? Well, one strategy is by just, as we've been doing in a couple of our study groups in Europe, is delaying the once we introduce aspergenase. In many protocols, we delay it until the day 15 during the first induction situation. We also have uh, lower the individual dose according to the toxicity all the way down maybe to 500. That's been done in the NOFO study group, GAMAL study group. And then uh, we also can also look at that we do therapeutic drug monitoring and personalize the dosing. So looking at depletion at day 14, do we need full level situation? Monitoring the uh, values of coagulation factors and taking that into account to adjust our dose of aspergenase because we just don't want to overdo it in this context. Another way is, and I think this is very important, is that we also can work on our obese patients. And this is, of course, just a situation where you take a training program and you take the patient to idolize their body weight-based physical activity, modest physical activity. And this is, of course, retrospective analysis, but I think it is very clear once you work on these patients that you really can do something great for these guys in actually taking it up, giving them something to do, that they really drop their weight and then we have a situation that we can get the drug into these patients much more easier. So obviously there are the other things that we can try to do. There are many evidence that we can maybe do. Ustedial prophylaxis, just anecdotal evidence, not really clear cut done currently in situation. There may be other ways of doing that, that we can use L-carotene and vitamin B complexes. It's just sort of in the field what we are starting to work on, how to actually get around that situation. And I think this is a phase two trial currently on the way in the United States, where they are just looking at the efficacy of preventing these toxicities with L-carotene in the situation. With that, I would like to sort of conclude. Uh, I think uh, the pediatric regimens have been really great uh, in and revolutionized our treatment for adult young patients have the standard of care. And the key is intensified aspergenase therapy. And with that, the major toxicity of this patient is related to aspergenase, hepatotoxicity, and we have identified obesity of being the barrier to get the drug into these patients. So how do we get around it? We monitor aspergenase activity, depletion, with a more personalized approach. So I think it's absolute standard today to resend in the samples to a lab to get that done and then looking at pharmacological prevention strategies and work on the obesity issue with that. With that, I would like to...
hand over to my colleague Rachel to give her perspective on the pediatric case. Thank you. Thank you so much, Max, um, and thank you all for coming. It's uh, a real honor and privilege to uh, do the session with <coughs> Drs. Top and, uh, and Rosari. Um, uh, as they mentioned, I'm Rachel Rao. I'm a pediatric oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about one of my, my favorite conversation topics, um, asparaginase use in pediatric uh, patients with lymphoblastic leukemia and lymphoma. So there's going to be a, a case-based discussion at the end of this session, but I thought I would start off my portion of the talk with a case report, um, one of really historical importance to those of us in the field of pediatric hematology oncology. And that's the case that was published um, in the mid-1960s, reporting the very first use of an asparaginase preparation in a pediatric child with acute leukemia. Um, now, of course, this was built on all the foundational data that Dr. Rosari very nicely described, um, showing the efficacy of asparaginase uh, in treatment of lymphoblastic leukemia and lymphoma. Um, but this group uh, of physicians and scientists um, treated a child, an eight-year-old boy, with relapsed um, B-cell ALL, um, with one single infusion of asparaginase that was partially purified from guinea pig serum. And what they identified is that after this one treatment um, of the single agent of, of the asparaginase preparation, the child's white blood cell count reduced from 18,000 to 4,700. The lymphoblast percent declined from 67% to 14%. Um, his liver size uh, decreased, as did uh, the size of his testicles, which were infiltrated with leukemia. Um, and that's nicely shown in um, this pretty cool figure here, which I think was generated in the very first iteration of BioRender, actually. So it's a nice picture. Um, but it really demonstrated the efficacy of asparaginase for the treatment of leukemia of our patients um, and really opened the door to a multitude of clinical investigations really establishing the efficacy um, of asparaginase for the treatment of pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, so while the early preclinical and clinical data really uh, showed that the, the field that asparaginases were effective antileukemic agents, really the next wave of clinical investigations really worked to optimize how we included asparaginase preparations in the treatment of our pediatric patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and lymphoma. And a number of really seminal and important studies really all came to the same basic conclusion that more intensive asparaginase incorporation into pediatric chemotherapy protocols was overall better. Um, just to run through a few of these in a nice um, uh, uh, summary paper published by Rob Piers and others, um, we see that uh, one uh, study by the Dana-Farber Consortium led by Lewis Silverman um, was the first to really incorporate um, 30 continuous weeks of asparaginase therapy uh, in their intensification phase of therapy. And what Lewis and others found is that this was superior to all other Dana-Farber trials that had been run up to that point, suggesting that that intensive phase of asparaginase therapy really improved outcomes in their patients. Furthermore, when they looked at patients who were treated on that 30-week intensive uh, asparaginase uh, protocol, they found that the patients who tolerated and were able to complete at least 25 of the planned 30 weeks um, of asparaginase had superior outcomes to those who received less than 25 weeks due to intolerance. Um, you can see that here, 90 versus 73%, so a striking difference. Um, additionally, um, some of our European colleagues, including Dr. Rosari, um, looked at the addition of 20 weeks of continuous asparaginase therapy to uh, standard BFM chemotherapy backbone. And what Dr. Rosari showed is that um, this addition of 20 weeks of asparaginase therapy to the BFM backbone resulted in significantly improved event-free survivals amongst the patients. Um, and this was reiterated with a number of other trials, adding that 20 weeks of uh, asparaginase therapy uh, for patients with both T and B-cell ALL. Additionally, there have been some randomized clinical trials, um, randomizing patients to receive either uh, native E. coli asparaginase or Erwinia asparaginase. And, and both of these randomized trials showed that uh, the longer half-life E. coli-derived asparaginase was superior to the shorter half-life uh, Erwinia asparaginase in those trials, again, suggesting that sort of more is better in terms of asparaginase therapy for pediatric BALL patients. Um, of course, it's important, and so it's important that we have multiple preparations available to our patients, and Dr. Topp has already reviewed um, the currently uh, approved uh, preparations of asparaginase available to our patients, so I won't um, review this again. 
Um, but I think it's important to know while, while we all agree that incorporation of asparaginase is incredibly important for the optimal uh, outcomes of our patients, um, there are some important differences between how it is incorporated in pediatric protocols uh, around, around the world. Um, and in general, I think of there being two basic philosophies of asparaginase administration to pediatric patients. Uh, one in which you give intermittent doses of asparaginase um, with, uh, with intervals in time without asparaginase between those doses. Um, and then uh, other protocols in which you employ a continuous uh, asparaginase given um, over prolonged periods of time with the goal of leading to complete asparagine depletion um, for most of a patient's intensification phase. So just review of, a review of a few of these uh, example um, protocols in which um, those different strategies are employed. Um, I mostly work with the children's oncology group, and uh, the children's oncology group is one in which we use intermittent dosing of asparaginase, and you can see um, just example study schemas um, depicted here, um, whereas all of our patients will receive asparaginase during induction therapy, um, and then what happens with their overall therapy, including the intensification of their asparaginase, is dependent upon their risk stratification. Um, our patients who are uh, more readily cured with chemotherapy, our standard risk and low-risk patients, um, will actually only receive one further dose um, in a phase of therapy called delayed intensification. Um, whereas our high-risk patients, we know require more intensive uh, asparaginase therapy as well as overall chemotherapy. Um, and so these patients get multiple doses um, throughout many phases of their treatment, um, again, given on an intermittent basis with, with periods of time in between those doses without any asparagine depletion. Now, the COG uh, chemo backbone is largely based on uh, the chemo backbone pioneered by the BFM protocol. And so if you look at the, the most recent trials run by the AIEOP BFM groups, um, you'll note that those protocols are very much the same because essentially we've stolen them for the children's oncology group purposes because they're quite effective. Um, so you can see the very similar um, dosing strategy of asparaginase with their um, you know, standard risk or lower risk patients receiving just that one uh, dose uh, in a phase of therapy uh, pre-maintenance, um, whereas their high-risk patients like on CAG protocols um, receiving more intensive chemotherapy uh, more intensive asparaginase therapy in their post-consolidation pre-maintenance phase. Now, the other philosophy is the continuous administration of asparaginase, and this is um, one of the, the therapeutic approaches really pioneered by the Dana-Farber Consortium. Um, and you can see just an example of one of their recent, um, recently conducted studies um, where their patients will receive that one dose of pegasparaginase during induction, um, and then they receive a continuous administration of asparagine um, up to 30 weeks for their standard risk patients, um, and then their higher risk patients receiving up to 33 weeks of continuous asparagine um, throughout that intensification phase of therapy. Now, more recently, um, the Dutch um, DECOG group um, in their ALL11 trial um, proposed a really interesting idea and, and, and approach to this continuous administration. Um, essentially, this trial asked the question of if you could individualize the dose of asparaginase you're giving based on the serum asparaginase activity level of the patients. And so the overall approach was to give three fixed doses of 1,500 international units per meter square um, during the induction phase of therapy. And then for their standard risk and medium risk patients, um, they received an individualized dose based on their trough asparaginase activity level, um, with the goal activity level being uh, between 100 and 250 international units per liter, uh, a, a trough that most would agree um, would, would as be associated with complete asparagine depletion. Um, and you'll note, um, much like in uh, the BFM and the COG protocols, um, their standard risk patients receive just one sort of post-induction dose, whereas their medium risk patients receive that continuous dosing strategy um, over the course of several weeks of their intensification phase. The strategy uh, achieved its goal. Um, they, they postulated that using the therapeutic drug monitoring, they'd be able to individualize the dose and, and reduce the dose for many patients. And in fact, the vast majority of patients who were monitored with therapeutic drug monitoring were able to decrease the doses that they received in that intensification phase of therapy. Um, from the, the fixed dose of 1,500 international units per meter square to a mean of 450 international units per meter square. So obviously, this translates into a huge cost saving in terms of asparaginase uh, uh, dosing that patients receive. 
Um, the authors also postulated that um, this might reduce some of the toxicities of asparaginase, but interestingly, they really didn't see much in the way of differences in toxicities in the patients treated on this protocol compared to the ALL11 protocol in which they all received fixed doses. And I think that sort of speaks to the fact that some of these asparaginase-related toxicities um, are really independent of dose. Um, there were some exceptions to that. Liver toxicity did seem to be um, reduced to this individualized dosing strategy, that, but that didn't seem to be the primary sort of um, benefit of using this, fixed, uh, this uh, individualized dosing strategy. Nonetheless, it's still um, an interesting and feasible approach. Um, of course, we're still awaiting the final outcome data from this trial, which will be important to ensure the patients who received lower doses um, of asparaginase didn't have a decrement in their, in their outcome, which I think would be unlikely but important to prove. Now, of course, we've talked a lot about the uh, efficacy and benefit of using asparaginase in our pediatric ALL patients. Um, but of course, it bears mention um, that there's a very unique toxicity profile of asparaginases for our patients, just like Dr. Topp reviewed very nicely for the adult patients. Um, but to specifically speak to the pediatric experience with some of the more um, prevalent toxicities of asparaginase, um, of course, our patients can have hypersensitivity reactions. Um, and that range is reported from 5 to 50, you know, to 30 percent, um, certainly less with the pegylated products that we're now uh, using in the upfront setting. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about hypersensitivity in the upcoming slides. Pancreatitis is also a problematic um, and sometimes dose-limiting toxicity of our patients, um, certainly more common amongst our um, adolescent and young adult patients, um, and can be to the point where patients can't receive uh, further asparaginase therapy if severe. Um, hepatotoxicity is also an issue and one that we know is associated with obesity, as Dr. Topp just very nicely reviewed, um, and, and something that we, we grapple with in our AYA patients, particularly those who um, have obesity and metabolic disorder. Um, thrombosis, while uncommon in our younger patients, um, is highly prevalent amongst our AYA patients and can be problematic. Um, and then hyperglycemia and hypertriglyceridemia are also um, relatively prevalent, uh, occasionally to the point where they require medical management of those uh, complications. But of those toxicities, um, I think it's, it's safe to say that hypersensitivity reactions um, are probably the most common um, uh, asparaginase-limiting toxicity that we experience in our pediatric population. Of course, asparaginase is a foreign-derived protein. It comes from a bacteria, um, and obviously foreign-derived proteins can elicit uh, an immune response. I actually sometimes wonder why everybody doesn't react to this foreign product that we're injecting into them. Um, but, it, but fortunately, it is a minority of our patients, but still a problem nonetheless. Um, in many cases, these hypersensitivity reactions are pretty obvious. They manifest as, as a frank allergy. Patients have hives and wheezing and, and other um, uh, symptoms of an allergy all the way to an anaphylactic reaction. Um, and uh, in addition to sort of the life-threatening uh, symptomatology that patients can experience, these allergic reactions are also problematic because they're largely caused by antibodies to the asparaginase uh, product that leads to its rapid degradation unless you lose your therapeutic efficacy. Um, additionally, we know that there are some patients who have these neutralizing antibodies present but don't have uh, any symptoms of an allergic reaction. Um, these patients also will have that rapid degradation of the asparaginase and thus a lack of therapeutic effect. So if unrecognized, these patients will have an inferior outcome. And because there's no overt symptomatology associated with silent inactivation, this can only be detected by therapeutic drug monitoring with serum asparaginase activity levels. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in subsequent slides. So um, hypersensitivity certainly isn't unique to children getting asparaginase. It's also seen in the adult setting. Um, but it does tend to be less common amongst adults compared to children um, for, for unclear reasons, probably just basic immune differences. Um, it's reported to occur in 1 to 23% of adults. Again, you can see that up in 30% of the children. Um, and these reactions of any grade um, can be seen. Um, but uh, only are severe in adults in about 2 to 10 percent, whereas we see this more commonly in our pediatric patients. Now, just like in the adult setting, the hypersensitivity can manifest as, as any of the features of an allergic reaction, dyspnea, pruritus, edema, rash, coughing, vomiting, um, all the way to frank anaphylaxis with vital sign instability. Um, and these reactions really warrant a, a complete change. You, you can no longer give um, the asparaginase preparation to which the patients reacted. You have to switch to an alternative product without immunologic cross-reactivity. 
Um, so sort of delving into the management of hypersensitivity, obviously if you have a patient who's having an allergic reaction in front of you, you have to interrupt um, the asparaginase infusion. Always important to have all of your um, anti-allergy medications on hand when you're infusing uh, any asparaginase into a patient because you would have to rapidly give them antihistamine, glucocorticoids, and occasionally epinephrine to reverse the reaction that they are having. Um, and in these cases, of course, um, the switch to a non-cross-reactive uh, preparation would be a switch to uh, Arwenia asparaginase. Um, additionally, um, in the case of patients who are found to have silent inactivation, these patients, while they don't have uh, you know, clinical features of an allergic reaction, still warrant uh, a switch to Arwenia because they aren't having therapeutic efficacy from their E. coli-derived asparaginase. So we've talked a little bit about silent inactivation. So these are patients who don't have any overt symptoms of allergy but still have antibodies and clear the drug rapidly. Um, sort of on the opposite end of that spectrum, you can have patients who have overt symptomatology but don't have neutralizing antibodies. And these are cases we refer to as, as having an infusion reaction or sometimes called a, an allergic-like reaction. And these are, in general, um, reactions that develop during or shortly after an IV infusion of a medication. And they're thought to be caused by um, uh, processes like direct release of cytokines or histamine or direct activation of the complement system um, or perhaps more relevant to our asparaginase preparations, a really sharp spike uh, in the blood ammonia levels that patients um, have after receiving an asparaginase preparation that's due directly to the mechanism of action of asparagin, asparaginase. Obviously, when it cleaves asparagine, it breaks it into an aspartic acid and releases an ammonia. So particularly with an IV infusion, you have a really rapid rise in the patient's blood ammonia level, leading to many of the symptomatologies that are overlapping with an allergic reaction. You can have a rash, coughing, vomiting, vital sign instability, um, really difficult in the heat of the moment to distinguish from an antibody-mediated allergic reaction. But it is important to distinguish between the two when you can because the management is quite different. If it's an infusion or an allergic-like reaction, these patients can be safely rechallenged with asparaginase, um, albeit with uh, some modifications, either slowing the rate or giving premedications ahead of time. Whereas if it's an antibody-mediated pr uh, process, obviously you have to switch preparations to something non-cross-reactive. So it's often hard to distinguish the two because, as I said, they're overlapping, but there are some clues that one can use to try and distinguish. Um, the antibody-mediated reactions are most common um, after the second or third dose of the asparaginase product, whereas infusion reactions tend to be more common in the first and then uh, reduce in frequency with subsequent doses. Again, the signs and symptoms are largely overlapping, um, but uh, one of the things that can help distinguish is the rash. So with a, an antibody-mediated allergic reaction, it's typically hives, pruritus, um, wheels, um, whereas an infusion reaction can be a more diffuse sort of redness uh, generalized throughout the body, so that can help. Um, but of course, none of these things are 100% sensitive or specific for distinguishing between those two processes. Um, so the only real objective data that one can use in a case of a questionable allergic reaction is serum asparaginase activity level for therapeutic drug monitoring. So we've, we've touched on, ther on therapeutic drug monitoring for asparaginase um, along the way here, but just to go into it a little bit further, um, it was something developed really um, and used in the research setting for a long time, but now has grown into um, a clinical assay um, that has been uh, really become mainstream with now commercial labs uh, available to do these assays for our patients. And so a number of uh, expert groups have come up with some consensus statements on how best to utilize this really powerful assay to optimize the asparaginase treatment for our patients. Um, and so sort of the first thing to consider is what is the therapeutic level of serum asparaginate activity? And I'll say this is actually still hotly debated. Some people say it's 0.02 international units per mil. Some will say it's 0.4. So the, so the range varies. Um, but in general, the most agreed upon level is a trough of 0.1 in, uh, units per mil. Um, that's most commonly associated with complete asparagine depletion uh, in, in the vast majority of research studies. So that's the one that's largely used by experts in the field. 
Um, of course, there are some other um, direct ways that one could consider um, determining if a patient has received a therapeutic dose of asparagine. There are antibody assays available, but I'll say they're thus far not terribly specific or sensitive, um, and so I don't feel they are uh, really ready uh, for prime time in terms of distinguishing if a patient uh, has really had an antibody-mediated reaction. Additionally, asparagine can be measured. However, the assay to conduct this is incredibly cumbersome and really fraught with difficulties because there's very rapid ex vivo degradation. So it really takes a, a dedicated process um, to, to conduct this. So it's not really a feasible assay to conduct uh, in cl for clinical purposes at this time. Um, but luckily, the serum asparagine's activity level, um, which essentially measures how much asparagine cleaving activity is present in the blood, has become a very feasible, useful, and powerful assay for our patients. So most experts in the field would agree that if you have a patient who's had a questionable reaction after receiving an asparaginase product, um, sending a serum asparaginase activity level could help distinguish um, if it was an antibody-mediated process or not. If the levels are lower than you would anticipate based on the amount of the asparagine, the asparaginase the patient has received that's consistent with an antibody-mediated reaction um, and would suggest you need to switch to urinase. On the other hand, um, if the level is still quite good, that would argue against an antibody-mediated reaction, and that's a patient that you could potentially consider rechallenging with the same asparaginase preparation. Um, most experts would agree if you've got a very severe reaction, one that uh, is highly consistent with an antibody-mediated process with anaphylactic-like symptoms, um, those are patients you can switch without need for therapeutic drug monitoring. But of course, there's a lot of gray zone in there, so, so the serum asparagine activity level can be incredibly helpful in sorting out um, what's happened to your patient. Additionally, therapeutic drug monitoring can be used in patients who have received their entire dose of asparaginase without any symptomatology um, to detect those uh, rare patients who have silent inactivation warranting a switch to or when he has. Um, and the, the definitions of silent activation vary from uh, sort of consensus to consensus, uh, but a reasonable approach would be to look at your asparaginase activity level seven days after receiving a dose of pegasparaginase, and at that time it's less than that 0.1 threshold that's consistent with silent inactivation, or if you get out to the trough, so 14 days after the peg dose, um, or two to three days after an Arrhenia dose, and the level is below the limit of quantification that's also consistent with silent inactivation. Um, uh, increasingly, um, sites, particularly in North America, are now pre-medicating universally before every dose of pegasparaginase in an effort to reduce the reactions that are occurring. Um, and this can hypothetically mask the allergic symptoms that a patient might have if they have neutralizing antibodies. So most experts would argue that uh, TDM is really mandatory in patients who have been pre-medicated for their pegasparaginase dose. So we've seen this slide before, and um, I think it bears sort of repeating um, that we've just said that if you have neutralizing antibodies, be it because you, you've identified that because they had an allergic reaction or if they have silent inactivation, these patients require a different preparation, and that preparation has historically been Arrhenia asparaginase. Now, the problem with that is that um, there have been manufacturing issues with Arrhenia asparaginase that have led to really significant um, drug shortages that have impacted a lot of our patients, um, both in, at COG and other consortium as well. In fact, we haven't had Arrhenia uh, asparaginase available to our patients in the U.S. since the first quarter of 2021, so over a year now since we've had it available in the U.S., um, and even in the three to four years prior to that, had been consistently um, on back order for, for some months at a time. Um, so uh, Dr. Gupta and, and others of the Children's Oncology Group sort of looked into what is the impact that having to omit courses of asparagines because of drug shortages have had on our patients. And this is a slide that Dr. Topp has already showed, uh, but it really demonstrated that particularly amongst our high-risk patients, Missing even one course of your asparaginase was associated with a 50% increase in events for our high-risk patients. So missing asparaginase doses equals worse disease-free survival. So obviously it's super critical that we have consistent and reliable uh, access to alternative asparaginase products for our patients who've reacted to pegasparaginase. Um, and just more supporting data from the NOFO group, 
They also looked at um, their patients who had to have truncated therapy, most commonly for hypersensitivity, um, but other patients had it omitted for pancreatitis or thromboembolism. Um, and you can see that um, patients who have had uh, truncation of their therapy had a worse event-free survival that was significant from those who received all courses uh, that were planned in their, in their therapy. So again, reiterating the importance of receiving every single dose um, of your asparaginase that's in your therapy plan. So to that regard, um, to overcome some of the manufacturing issues um, that have hampered our ability to get our winning asparaginase for our patients, uh, in, in collaboration with Jazz Pharmaceuticals, um, alternative products have been pursued. Um, and one is a recombinant chrysanthospase. Chrysanthospase is the Arwinia asparaginase um, that's been produced in a novel pseudomonas um, fluorescence uh, platform, um, was recently studied in clinical trials. Now, um, this product, um, called JZP458, um, has, a, has the same exact amino acid sequence as Arwinia. <clears throat> So it has the same indication for Owinia. Um, it's not cross-reactive with E. coli-derived asparaginase, so it's useful <clears throat> for patients who have had allergic reactions to Oncospar. Um, it was first studied clinically in a phase one trial of healthy adult volunteers. And essentially in this trial, um, patients received one dose of either um, the FDA-approved dose of Erwinia at 25,000 international units per meter square, or 25 milligrams per meter square of JZP given via IM route of administration. Um, and what you can see is that um, all the way out to the 72-hour trough, um, all of the enrolled subjects maintained uh, serum asparagine activity levels above that 0.1 threshold of therapeutic activity, suggesting that the dose of 25 milligrams per meter square of JZP was quite equivalent to uh, what we were giving our patients uh, in terms of our Winia asparaginase. So this uh, formed the foundation for a phase two clinical trial that was run by Jazz in collaboration with the Children's Oncology Group. Um, and this trial studied the safety and efficacy um, of JZP in pediatric and adult patients with uh, newly diagnosed um, B-cell or T-cell ALL or lymphoblastic lymphoma. Um, <clears throat> these patients were um, scheduled to receive six doses of JZP458 substituted for each dose remaining of pegasparaginase on their protocol on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. There were two parts to this trial. The first part uh, tested the IM route of administration. The second, the IV route of administration. <clears throat> and this uh, trial was reviewed by the FDA under the real-time oncology review um, protocol. So based on interim analysis of data that was submitted uh, partway through the trial, as well as in light of the ongoing and dire shortage of Irwinase, um, JZP458 was actually FDA approved in June of 2021. Now, the FDA approved dose was based on, again, partial data that was submitted to the FDA from this trial. And so the initial FDA approved label is for 25 milligrams per meter square given IM every 48 hours. To go into a little bit more of the data that we now have from this trial, um, <clears throat> to review sort of the structure of the trial, we started at a dose of 25 milligrams per meter square given Monday, Wednesday, Friday. <clears throat> and while we saw at 48 hours, um, the trough levels were quite good in all patients above that 0.1 threshold that we were aiming for, only 66% of the patients had maintained that at that 72-hour trough mark. And that was well below our 90% sort of goal for that 72-hour trough. So after the SDRC re reviewed these data, um, we enrolled a second cohort looking at a 37.5 milligrams per meter square dose. And while things had overall improved, we were still falling short of the 72-hour trough mark. And so we reviewed all the available um, observed data and conducted a population PK modeling, um, which suggested that a, a sort of split dosing of 25-25 on Mondays and Wednesdays and a 50 milligram dose on Fridays would ultimately lead to uh, sort of hitting that 72-hour mark that we had aimed for. Uh, and indeed, um, what we found is that uh, was almost all patients uh, were above 0.1 at the 48-hour mark um, with this uh, alternate dosing strategy. 90% of the patients were achieving that threshold level at the 72-hour time mark as well. So these data have now been submitted to the FDA and we're waiting the review of it. Um, additionally, um, we've submitted the data from the IV cohort. Um, so we're eager to uh, sort of get those data out there and, and hear from the FDA because we know that the IV route of administration is certainly preferable for some families, some centers, and some consortia. So we think that's all important and more to come. 
So I'll wrap up there um, with just a few conclusions. Of course, asparaginase is a critical component of pediatric um, lymphoelastic leukemia and lymphoma therapy. Um, different asparaginase um, dosing strategies have been employed by different consortia, uh, but they're all equally efficacious when uh, combined in the context of a multi-agent chemotherapy regimen. Um, truncation or omission or, or inferior asparaginase therapy in general is associated with poor outcomes, so it's really critical that we minimize those interruptions of this critical component of, of ALL therapy. And with that, I'll stop and, and turn it back over to Dr. Rosari. Thank you. <clears throat> So, as you have seen, uh, we have uh, got a lot of uh, information either in the adult setting and in the pediatric setting. We have heard about uh, the problems with toxicity, pancreatitis, obesity. So, I think that now is time. We have a few more minutes to spend. Maybe we can go a little bit more uh, than, uh, than a seven. So. Uh, let's say that uh, we try now to look at your skills, let's say, this way, and uh, with the three cases, um, on how would you react to these specific uh, clinical situations. So this is the schema of uh, the um, protocol IEOP-BFM 2009, which is a, a protocol uh, which has been closed in 2017, which was characterized, you may see here, the red arrows represent one dose of pegylate asparginase. Embedded in this uh, protocol, there were two studies with a prolonged use of uh, pegylate asparginase, you may see here, for intermediate risk patients. 10 doses versus one dose, and here in the high-risk patients, four doses versus no dose. So you may immediately see that in this context, the number of pegylated asparginase doses can go from three in the T non-high risk or in the low-risk patients in general, so two during induction and one during the later phases, uh, but uh, for high-risk patients, you may see that even patients not randomized were receiving uh, several exposures to uh, pegylated asparginase. So this is important because uh, we will see that this can imply some kind of uh, uh, particular uh, um, reactions. Uh, so let's say with this first, pace, first patient, this is a three-years-old female, who was uh, at, at intermediate risk. So this patient was receiving two doses during induction and uh, one dose during the protocol two, which is the reinduction. So as you may see on day eight the, the, of the reinduction, which is the protocol two, so it's later during the treatment uh, path, received uh, pegylate asparginase IV in two hours, 2,500. And uh, 30 minutes after the infusion started, out of the 120 minutes planned, patient experienced generalized flushing, itchiness, hypotension, and wheezing. Infusion was discontinued, physicians at bedside. The diphenhydramine, hydrocortisone, and epinephrine were administered, respond to treatment in 30, 40 minutes. Ammonia levels were normal. The drug was not restarted, but sampling was performed one and 24 hours later to measure asparagine's activity levels. No activity was found, so activity levels were zero in these patients. And uh, uh, please consider that uh, about one-fourth of the drug was given. Um, indeed, the, in that protocol, uh, it was, was not mandatory to measure asparagine's activity levels, but in any case, this was certainly a situation where this patient had an allergic reaction, hypersensitivity reaction, and uh, we shifted the patient to the Erwinia product and uh, received the schedule, which is 20,000 units IV every other day times seven. So basically, uh, this patient was underwent the uh, monitoring and uh, this confirmed the hypersensitivity reactions. Patient number two. Patient is a five-year-old male patient, intermediate risk, receiving uh, uh, 1A and randomized to receive the 10 doses during reinduction. So it's very similar to the previous patient. And so let's say that this patient was uh, uh, receiving the two hours pegaspagenes dose. This is the first dose of the second exposure. And uh, uh, for this protocol, it was mandatory to perform uh, asparagine activity levels uh, after seven days of the administration of the second uh, exposure. Asparagine activity levels were available 48 hours later, and no asparagine activity was detected. So 
the IOP BFM 2009 protocol indicate that in a case of silent inactivation, which was the case, because after seven days, the patient had no activity levels in the blood. The patient had to be shifted to Erwinia, 20,000 units IV every other day times seven. The treatment was, however, stopped after the seven Erwinia asparaginase doses because you may remember this patient had to be exposed to 10 doses but for the protocol, once the patient had a reaction after the first dose, the treatment with asparagus in that arm had to be stopped. Patient number three. I think that we have still a few minutes to conclude these cases and then to answer some questions coming from the audience. Patient number three. You see this patient is a patient at a high risk. High risk during induction, he was receiving uh, two doses of pegylated asparaginase. So, the patient received uneventfully the first planned dose of pegylated asparaginase at the dose planned by the protocol in two hours. On day 29, the second scheduled dose of PEG was given via IV infusion in the outpatient department. 30 minutes after the PEG asparaginase infusion started, the patient presented with nausea, anxiety, malaise, abdominal pain, flushing, cough, and sore throat. Action taken. Treatment suspended, steroids and definidremine administered, and the hydration rate increased. Ammonia levels were relatively increased. The patient returned to clinical normality, to clinical normality in 60 minutes. Infusion was restarted at a much slower rate and was completed in three hours without any additional symptoms. Asparaginase levels were monitored after 24 hours and remained in the expected range. So the patient completed all the PEG asparaginase plant doses for the high-risk group with a lower infusion rate and without any further problems. So maybe we can start with uh, uh, a few of these questions. So one question coming, I would say, for, uh, for uh, Max. If uh, what, what is the problem, how do you approach the patient with the uh, high BMI, so the obese patients? Do you reduce systematically the treatment, the dose, or you take some specific uh, precautions in these patients? Well, thanks for that question. That is very relevant. Well, our approach is that saying that this is a 30-year-old male, uh, we would automatically uh, go instead from 2,000 units per square meter to 500 square meters. And then we would measure uh, the activity on day seven and day 14, review also coagulation factors and also his liver. And depending on those results, we may then introduce a higher level of the next dose, maybe to a thousand, and then just work our way up, very similar to the approach that was taken by um, the other groups. Good because this is a, uh, this is a, 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 rational, a rational approach. So try to identify the critical patients, the patients who can develop more toxicity or more problems than others, and monitor the patient more carefully. So one question in, for, for Rachel. The, we, there are two questions uh, uh, focused on pancreatitis. So the question on pancreatitis I would uh, summarize. Would you re-expose a patient with pancreatitis to asparagines, any type of asparagines, pegylated or erwinase after a clinical pancreatitis? Yeah, that's a great question, one I think we've grappled with as a field. <clears throat> I think, in general, what I'll say is uh, the decision to re-challenge a patient with asparaginase after a pancreatitis event should be primarily based on their risk of relapse. Um, I think a number of studies, one uh, from the, the Pontelagno group, uh, demonstrated that <clears throat> patients who have had pancreatitis with asparaginase, um, if rechallenged, 50% of them will have a recurrent event. Um, that means that 50% of them will not. Um, additionally, I think what's important to note about that data is if the patients had a recurrent event, the recurrent event did not tend to be more severe than the first event. Um, so I think if you have a patient in which intensification of asparaginase therapy is their most likely path to cure their leukemia, um, I think that's a different risk calculation than in a standard risk patient who was only going to get one additional dose of asparaginase. Um, in the children's oncology group, we've amended our protocols to allow for a re-challenge of patients who have had uh, any grade two uh, pancreatitis 
uh, and patients who have had a grade three pancreatitis that we deem as relatively mild, so if the symptoms lasted less than 72 hours um, and they didn't have severe complications such as insulin-dependent uh, glucose intolerance um, or pseudocysts, things like that, those are patients that we allow for rechallenge of asparaginase. Perfect. I agree totally. Uh, Max, for you, I would condense two different questions. One is, uh, have you any experience with patients uh, uh, beyond the age of 55, or is there an absolute upper age cutoff for considering asparagus therapy in adults with ALL? Well, within our study group, uh, for various recommendations on the national level, we actually expose patients between the age of 55 to 75 with 500 units per square meter. So, um, and that has been actually quite tolerable for the majority of patients in that age group. I think anyone beyond the age of 75, it becomes a very sticky matter. Mm. And I have personally no experience in one who, a patient who's 80 years old with yeah. aspergenase. Yeah. Fully agree with you as well. And for Rachel, Dr. Rao, what is the experience in delivering the Monday, Wednesday, Friday dose of recombinant Erwinia to date? Any differences in pediatric versus adolescents and young adults patients? Yeah, that's a... I don't know if I'm, okay, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, we're just starting to sort of parse out those data based on age, um, but we don't have the complete analysis performed on that. What I'll say is um, there's certainly a sense that just like uh, many of the toxicities we see with asparaginase, um, they tend to be more common amongst our older patients, including thrombosis and pancreatitis, and that uh, would stand a reason for any asparaginase, uh, including that. Um, as far as the activity levels, uh, we have not uh, evaluated the data on the basis of age yet. Um, but again, we're seeing with that uh, alternate dosing strategy, 90% of patients achieving the 0.1 threshold at 72 hours. So wouldn't expect major differences by age. Yeah. I, I will just answer one question about uh, what is the experience with reducing the dose in the COGLL. I am not personally informed about that, but this is feasible. The activity levels are quite good. So let's say that this is uh, feasible, but the data are still preliminary. Thank you very much, because uh, today we heard from our speakers and uh, from the questions coming from the audience uh, uh, a lot of nice questions, important to better manage patients with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, asparaginase. Uh, as you have understood, uh, to better treat our patients, we must know uh, toxicity, we must know efficacy, we must know pharmacological characteristics. Not every single drug is the same, so I think that uh, today we got a lot of uh, good information to better treat our patients, to better design our protocols. So thank you very much for the attention, for staying with us this evening. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JFN860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.